The human life is designed by God to operate upon two separate axes, both the vertical, the up and down, and also the horizontal. The vertical is our relationship with God. That is the personal walk that we have with him and then the work that he does within our lives as he conforms us into the image of his son and makes us what he wants us to be. That's the vertical access. But we also operate on a horizontal plane. And the horizontal is our relationship with earth. And that is our practical walk or our purpose or what it is that we accomplish with our life or better yet, what God accomplishes through our lives as we interact within the world. Now, the unsaved person has no vertical access, access, I should say. They operate completely on the horizontal. They kind of aimlessly wander through this world looking for something to do and hoping to maybe hit a target or do something, but they have no vertical because they don't know Christ. They don't know God. Now, the saved person has a horizontal, but it's driven by the vertical. The more important axis that we operate on is within our relationship with God. That comes first. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. Meaning that the vertical axis is what's important and that everything on the horizontal is just an outflow from that which is the vertical. So what that means for you and I is that at any given time within our life, there are two separate fields of work that are going on. There's, first of all, what God is doing in my life, the vertical axis, the character that he's trying to form within me, the confirmation of making me into a Christ-like person, the creation of those things that are right, and then also the cleansing away of those things that are not right. All of that is what God is doing within our lives at a given time. But at the other end of the spectrum, the other field of work that's taking place is what God is doing through our lives as he's using us in the world in which we live. And that speaks of the produce or the position that we hold within the world or the place that God has given us wherein we are an influence or the things that we do. Our family life, our business life, the talents that we use in our job or in our uh, commerce, the contacts that we have with unsaved people or saved people, just other human beings. And all of that is the practical work that God is doing through our lives. So there's the vertical, God working in our lives, and there's the horizontal, God working then through our lives. Now, typically, for you and I, for humans, we are more concerned with, or we like to place the emphasis upon the horizontal, the physical, the tangible, the outward, the action of life. That's what we look at, and we kind of measure our value based upon how productive we are in the horizontal. That is, what are we accomplishing with our life? God, on the other hand, is more concerned with the horizontal. His emphasis is more placed upon the vertical, rather. That is, what's going on in my heart? How is my character lining up with what I'm doing outwardly? My integrity, or my motives, or my drive, or my devotion to him? 
or the love that, that, that's coming in and, and then through my life. All of the things that are unseen and God measures our value based upon those things, how we're doing on the vertical axis. Now, what that then means for you and I practically is that regardless of what is taking place in the horizontal of life, God is working in the vertical. He's doing things to shape our character and to make us Christ-like and to change and transform us and to make us what we're supposed to be. And thus we go through things as God works in us. And thus we see that take place in the life of King Hezekiah, who is the subject of much of our study tonight. We have seen that he is one of the greatest kings that Israel ever saw. He's put on the same plane as King David, elevated to that level like no other king has. There's no however attached to his testimony and that he failed, even though he did have feet of clay. And tonight we'll see some of that failure within his life. But he was one of the greatest, and he did more on the horizontal plane than almost any other king that came before him. And where we find him now is really in the prime of his life. And the Bible tells us that he trusted in the Lord his God, that he claved to him and that he was devoted to him and that that was the reason why he was so productive in all the things that he did outwardly. Now, in our last study, we saw Hezekiah have an incredible victory over the Assyrians, who was the invading army and the strong powerhouse militarily of that day. We saw that through the prayer of Hezekiah, 185,000 troops of the Assyrians were eliminated in one night and a great victory was wrought even though there was no battle that took place. And so incredible things happening in the horizontal of Hezekiah's life. But tonight we're going to see that God is not done with the vertical. God is still interested in doing things in Hezekiah's heart and thus we'll see some things uh, going on uh, behind the scenes and some of the things that lend themselves to uh, his legacy. And so in chapter 20, we pick up in verse 1 and we uh, come to this passage of scripture dealing with a sickness and, uh, and a healing in Hezekiah. It says in verse 1, it says, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. So we're told, first of all, that these events are taking place in the days of his victory over the Assyrians. It was really in the prime of his life. At this point, he's about 40 years old. So really just kind of getting going and really seeing things move and things happen. And it says that it was in those days that he was sick and that that sickness was a sickness that was life-threatening. And it says that the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And so the word of the Lord that came from Isaiah was that this sickness is going to be your final sickness. You're going to die from this. So it says he turned his face to the wall, and most likely because he had no other means of attaining privacy in that moment. And it says that he prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, 
or with a single or a united heart, completely devoted to you. And I've done that which is good in your sight. And it says that Hezekiah wept sore. And so he pleads with God to remember, to examine, and then it says that he's overtaken by weeping over the word that he received from Isaiah. And it says that it came to pass that before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, so only a few moments after Isaiah leaves the presence of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah offers this short and simple prayer to God, Isaiah, in just the middle court, it says that the word of the Lord came to him saying, turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father. I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. And on the third day, you shall go up into the house of the Lord. And I will add unto your days 15 years And I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And so we have this incredible passage that's kind of set before us here concerning the sickness and then the following recovery of Hezekiah in this time that he's in the prime of his life. And it's a passage that touches for us this idea or this concept of the place of prayer within the will of a sovereign, all-knowing, unchanging God. Now, this is a great mystery for anyone who is a Christian or anyone who studied or thought through these things. The Bible teaches us that God is absolutely sovereign. That means that he's over and he has authority over all things. That there's nothing that happens that God doesn't know about and that God is not the orchestrator of. He's sovereign over all. And the Bible also tells us that God has a will, that he has a design and a desire and a plan. But at the same time that he's sovereign and has a plan, a will, he also calls us to pray. And as we pray, we're exercising our will to offer petitions and requests to a God who's sovereign and has a will. And so there's a mystery in that. What part does my prayer have to play if God is already sovereign and God already has a perfect will? Why does he call me to pray? Now here in the text that's before us, we see that the sovereign will of God is spoken by the prophet. He says, this sickness is going to lead unto death. And that's a, thus saith the Lord. That is that God already decreed, this is the last sickness that you're going to have. But then we see a prayer made by Hezekiah. And we see that the sovereign will of God is then adjusted. Or is it changed? Or is this something where God is granting permission of something, but it's not his perfect will? And it's an extremely mysterious text in a very confusing concept to try to untangle and understand. Now, there's a couple things here about Hezekiah's prayer that I think are worthy of bringing forth. And that, first of all, is that he doesn't, anywhere in this prayer, ask God for more time. He doesn't ask and say, God, no, I don't want this to happen, and I pray that you would give me more time. He never does that. Not here, not in Chronicles, not in Isaiah, where all three of the places where this prayer and this event, excuse me, (coughs) that's embarrassing, but it's okay. I know you guys love me. 
<laughs> but he doesn't ask for more time. What he does do is he simply says, Lord, remember my devotion and see the perfection of my heart. And the perfection of my heart is not that he was perfect, for we know that he wasn't, but just that his inclination was completely united. He didn't have a divided heart. And he could say that before the Lord, saying, Lord, just please look upon my life and remember what I've done for these people and for your name. Now, he could be inferring from this that it would be contrary to what God has spoken for him to be taken home early. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 2, um, Moses wrote to the people, and he said uh, to them there, I didn't put a thing, so now i got to find it. Yeah, here it is. Um, he said that you might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, you and your son and your son's son, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. And so Hezekiah holding up, in a sense, the word that God spoke that, hey, if you do what's right before me, then I'll sustain your life. You'll have long days. But he doesn't hold that specifically before the Lord in that way. He just says, God, remember and see what I've done. And then it says that he wept and that he wept bitterly. And the implication behind the tears, of course, is that Hezekiah is not happy with the decision that God is making here. He feels no doubt that there's unfinished work that's been um, laid out before him. Perhaps he feels a little bit rejected. God, I've done so much, but in that you're going to take me home now right in the prime of things, was it not enough? Is there more that I could have done? I can only put myself into his position and imagine what I would feel like if after seeing great revival and great reform take place, and then God just says, hey, pack your bags, you're coming home. I'm done with you. I know that even though I might rejoice partially knowing, hey, I'm going to heaven, somewhere in there, there would be a God, why am I being taken out of the game right in the middle of my prime? Is there more for me to do? And then it tells us that God hears the prayer and he now grants um, Hezekiah 15 more years to live upon the earth and, and to do things. So the questions that this text presents and puts before us are these. First of all, does prayer change God's will in a given situation. Meaning that if God's will is revealed about something and I pray wanting something else, will God change his will to bring it in line with my prayer? And the answer to that is a resounding no. The Bible says that God is immutable. And that means that he does not change. And if he were to change his mind, then that would mean that he is imperfect. And the Bible does teach us that he is a perfect God and that he never makes a mistake. God never changes his will. So then you say, well, then what's the point of praying? If my prayer can't change his will, then why pray at all? And here's why. Because prayer does two things concerning the will of God within our lives. Number one, prayer unlocks God's will for us. Through prayer, God gives to us what it's been his intent to give us all along. In Ezekiel chapter 36, and that's a famous passage of scripture because it's all about when God is going to regather the children of Israel and bring them back into their land. God promises his people, Israel, that he's going to bring them back into their homeland in the last days. And it's something that he's done. But then at the end of the promise, God says this, verse 37. 
He says, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. In other words, God's saying, this is my will and this is my plan. But their prayer and asking me to do it is going to play a part in seeing my will accomplished in the situation. So prayer unlocks what God had already intended to do ahead of time. And it's when the prayer is offered that God then releases the blessing or the permission or the power of what's going to be done. We see this throughout the Bible. We see Peter in a prison cell and the next day he's going to be sentenced to die. The Bible says that Herod killed James with the sword and that he imprisoned Peter intending to kill him in the morning. But it says that prayer was offered to God by the church without ceasing for Peter. And it says that that night an angel came and supernaturally, miraculously released Peter from the prison. And the whole context of that story is that it was the result of the prayer of the church. That was God's will all along to release Peter from the prison. But it was upon the intercession of the saints that God's will was unlocked for Peter. We see Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail in Acts chapter 15. And it says that they prayed and sang psalms at midnight. And it was while they prayed and sang songs that an earthquake took place. The chains were broken. The prison doors were open and they were set free. But it was in that place of prayer and offering themselves to God in intercession that the hand of God was then moved. We saw in the chapter last week when Hezekiah had victory over the Assyrians. We saw that he laid out the threatening letter that Sennacherib had sent. And he went into the temple and put it before the Lord. And he prayed and said, God, for your namesake, deliver your people. Why would you let your reputation and your name be tarnished in this way? And it was as a result of Hezekiah's prayer that God went through with an angel and killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. God's will all along was to take out the Assyrians, but it was the prayer of Hezekiah that unlocked God's moving in that matter. We see Moses when he was interceding for the (coughs) children of Israel. In the days when Joshua was fighting the battle against the Amalekites. And it says that Moses up on the mountain was interceding for the battle. And that when his hands were raised in intercession... Joshua and the troops in the valley prevailed and that when Moses' hands became heavy and the intercession stopped, then the Amalekites prevailed against the Israelites. And so they propped up Moses' hands to hold him up that he might intercede for the people. But we see the place of prayer in releasing God's power to accomplish his will upon the earth. We see it with Joash. Remember in the story of Elisha, when Elisha said, smite the arrows on the ground. And he took the arrows and he just lackadaisically tapped the arrows upon the ground a couple of times. And Elisha was angered and he said, why did you do that so half-heartedly? If you had smitten the ground five or six times, then you would have had complete deliverance against the Assyrians. But now you're only going to have victory three times because you only tapped three times. So God's power was released in proportion to the prayer that was offered. So God's will is not altered when we pray, but when we pray, what God intended to do on our behalf all along is then released. Now what the implication of that is, is this. Is that you, through your prayer, cannot create 
God's will or God's power or God's blessings within your life. But what you can do is through prayerlessness, you can forfeit those blessings. Meaning it is possible for you to miss something that God has for you simply on account of prayerlessness. Isn't that what James said? He said, you have not because you ask not. And I wonder what things God has for us in our lives that we might miss out on simply because we operate within a state of prayerlessness or apathy. Well, God, you have a will and you're going to do your will and my prayer doesn't seem to matter. And so I'm not going to pray and you just do whatever you want. Listen, prayer unlocks the will of God within our lives. Prayer also confirms the will of God for our lives. There are times when the answer to prayer from God is no. That's the answer. And that's all the answer is going to be. You can pray all night, all week. You can fast for 40 days. You can go on a hunger strike against God, asking him to do something in your life. The answer is no, it's not his will. He's not going to change his mind. Moses wanted to go into the promised land. God, I've lived my whole life for this. I've led these people. I've done everything you ask. I made one mistake. God, please let me go into that land. And God said, stop it. I've already said it, and you're not going into the land, so I don't want to hear your voice again about this. Jonah, God, I don't want Nineveh. I'll go to Tarsus. I'll go to Spain. God, I'll go to what will one day be the United States of America. I am not going to Nineveh. God says, I'm not going to hear you again on this matter, Jonah. My will for your life is Nineveh or nothing. That's my plan. Take it or leave it. And Jonah said, leave it. And God said, no. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're going to Nineveh, and you're going to pray. And so God sent the whale, Jonah, in the whale for three days. It says, Jonah prayed. And then the whale spit him out on the shores of Nineveh. And the plan for Jonah's life was then. But no, David prayed earnestly for seven days that the child that was born to Bathsheba in that dark chapter of David's life would live. But God said, no, you can pray. But no, it's not going to happen. I've already decided on this. Paul wanted so desperately to go to the Gentiles. Please, God, send me to the Gentiles. No, you are called. Oh, wait, no, the other way around. He wanted to go to the Jews. No, you're called to the Gentiles. And I'm not bending on this thing. This is my will for your life. What about the thorn, God? One more time on the thorn. Can I lose the thorn? No. Listen, there are times when God's answer to our prayer is no. And so when we pray, God's will is then confirmed because he reveals to us what it is that he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do. So that's why we pray. Now, let me ask another question. Are there times when God will grant or allow as an answer to prayer something that is contrary to his will? And the answer to that is yes. There are times that God will say yes even though he wants to say no. Let me qualify that before you get scared and think, oh, now what? <laughs> you know? Let me qualify that. He never does that without, first of all, you knowing that what you're asking for is contrary to his will. And second of all, he never does that without there being consequences or a cost. Examples, Lot was rescued from the plague that was coming upon Sodom, the fire and the brimstone. And God said, go to the plain, get out of these cities. And Lot said, I want to go to a city. No, you're not to go to a city. Please let me go to a city. I don't want to go into the mountains. And God said, fine, go to Zoar. But eventually he left Zoar because when he saw the fury of God's wrath fall upon Sodom and the other cities, he thought, 
uh, we better obey. And he got out of there. But God said yes, even though it wasn't his will. I think of the children of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. God's will was that he would provide manna for them, bread from heaven that would fall. But it says that the people lusted for meat. They wanted meat. They, they were sick of the manna. And so they murmured before Moses and they said, please give us meat. And so God sent quails among them. The birds just supernaturally fell within the camp. And the people were so a lust for this meat that they didn't even cook it properly. They just tore open the birds and started eating the meat. But it tells us in Psalm 106, verse 15, it says that God gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. And oftentimes when we beg God for something that he's already said, this isn't my will, sometimes he'll say yes. But it doesn't satisfy when we get it in the way that we thought it would. We get what we wanted, but there's leanness in our soul. Balaam, again, another example of someone who prayed. God said no, but he insisted, and then God said yes, and it was a disaster. We see that happen from time to time throughout the scripture. Now the question is, is this event with Hezekiah that? Was God's perfect will for Hezekiah to go home at this point in his life? And in Hezekiah's insistence, God then granted him 15 more years. The answer? I don't know. I don't, I absolutely do not know the answer to this. What I can tell you is this. I can tell you that two things happened in that 15 years that Hezekiah wishes he wasn't around for. Number one is that he sired a son whose name was Manasseh, who would become the most wicked king that Israel ever had and launched them into a place where God's judgment was going to come upon them. And then the other thing that he did is that he showed an emissary of Babylonian princes all of the riches and the treasures of Israel and emboldened them to invade at a point in the future. He made two very great mistakes that he wouldn't have made had he gone home to be with the Lord at this time uh, when God had called him. On the other hand, he will also have a great-grandson named Josiah, who is also one of the greatest kings Israel will ever have. And that wouldn't have happened had Hezekiah gone home at this time. So was this God's will or wasn't it God's will? Well, the scripture doesn't say exactly. But here's what we can gather and here's what I do know about this. Number one for you and me is that we are called to pray. We must pray. God will not let us live in a non-relational relationship with him. He just won't allow that to happen. We will see stagnancy and nothingness take place within our lives if we live prayerlessly. Prayer unlocks what he intends to do within our lives and prayerlessness forfeits it. The other thing I know, beyond any shadow of a doubt that's true for every one of us, is that we are called to surrender to his will for our lives. That God, whatever you want to do within my life, I trust you that that's what's best. And Lord, if that is for me to go home at the age of 40, then God, so be it. I might not understand it, It might break my heart in some ways, but God, if that's your will, then let your will be done. And for us, any time to say, God, I want something that you don't want for my life is to bring disaster upon our lives. Understand that his no is always a greater yes to something else. 
If he says no to something, it's because he has something better in mind. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 1 says this. It says, the righteous perishes and no man lays it to heart. And merciful men are taken away. No one considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. In other words, there are times that God takes someone home because he sees a train wreck coming in their future or a train wreck coming in their world and he would spare them the grief of having to go through that. God says, consider that sometimes death is a blessing. I'm taking you home to be with me. And so God's will is always perfect. I couldn't help as I studied this uh, I, I know I don't. it's amazing the things that God can sanctify. But I had that song running through my head. You got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. And know when. That, that is so true concerning the will of God. Listen, if God's will in your life is something, fold. Say, God, your will be done. Whatever you want to do in my life, you do that in my life. He is faithful and he is wise. Well, Hezekiah given 15 more years. And it says that Isaiah said, now take a lump of figs or a poultice made out of figs, which was a common uh, medicinal use for figs in those days. And so they took and they laid it on the boil and he recovered. Now, what we have here is an instance where God uses medicine to heal. There are some people that say to take medicine or to see a doctor is a lack of faith. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible says that God is healer. He is the one that heals you. But he has various means by which he does that healing. There are times that God heals miraculously, and he can do that. He reserves the right. And he will use prayer and the miraculous to heal. There are also times that God will use medicine and doctors and physicians to scientifically do things that will bring healing into our life. And there are times when just our immune system and the natural forces that God has placed within our bodies will bring healing to our life. But listen, whether it's prayer, whether it's immunity, or whether it's medicine, God is the one who wants the credit and the glory for bringing that healing. And in this instance, God uses medicine upon a boil, whatever that was, uh, for, for him or however terminal it was, and it says that he recovered. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, this sign shall you have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. And he asks him, he gives him a choice. Shall the shadow that is on the sundial go forward 10 degrees or go back 10 degrees? So evidently from where Hezekiah was situated, he could see out the window and he could see the sundial of Ahaz, his ancestor. And as he looked at it, Isaiah said, here's going to be your sign. You could watch that sundial right now. Do you want to see it move forward 10 degrees or backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it is a light thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward 10 degrees. And so Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahab. Now, I love these passages of Scripture because they torture me. You know, I just have that scientific, methodical mind, and I say, okay, how did God do this, or what did God do here? 
I mean, did God just take the whole clock that is our universe with all the stars and solar systems, revolutions and rotations, and just bring the thing to a halt and then wind it backwards 10 degrees? Or did he just bend the light to make the shadow go back so that, you know, Hezekiah would just see the, the thing happen and, and it would be a confirmation and there would really be no uh, thing elsewhere? And if God were to stop everything <coughs> and make and actually make the thing go backwards, then would the water in the ocean slosh up onto the land? You know, because God stops everything, you know, and the whole world is kind of dry. I mean, how in the world does God do this? I really don't think it's all that complicated. I I have a water softener. I I, I mean, we have the hardest water in Dutchess County. I don't know if you do, but we do. It's like if you drink it, your insides crystallize if, if if there's not something done to it. And so I'm always trying to fix my water softener because my water softener can't even handle it. It's that bad, you know. But, but sometimes what happens is the power will go out or I have to fix something and I'll have to adjust the clock on the water softener. And the whole thing is like this integrated system of gears and wheels and the whole thing and it all turns together and spins, you know. And you think, well, if I want to reset the clock on that thing, do I have to turn the entire system of gears and wheels back? It actually has a button that you just push it in and it disengages the clock from all the other wheels and then you can just turn just the clock and then let go of the button, and it brings it back into you know, gear, so to speak. That's probably what God did. He probably just pushed the button of all the universe, turned the dial that, would, that, that the sun, it just, he made the thing, right? <laughs> the whole thing, and he just does it. But it's still fun to, to think about. So he sees the sign, the sundial goes back 10 degrees, uh, and, and the case of Hezekiah's sickness and his recovery is now closed. Well, as we come to verse 12, we come to an error in Hezekiah's life, a mistake that he made. After Hezekiah was healed of this disease, it tells us in the book of Chronicles that he was lifted up in pride and that he rendered not again according to the benefit that was done to him, meaning that he didn't give God thanks for the healing that he received in proper measure. But he somehow allowed it to go to his head thinking that he had some special favor with God And when the people of the land and the surrounding lands heard about what took place, they began to bring riches and honor and gifts to Hezekiah, and he became lifted up within his pride. And God humbled him, and he humbled himself. But it says that after that, it says that God removed his covering from Hezekiah for a moment to test him and to reveal to him what was going on within his heart. And that's the context of what happens here with the Babylonians in verse 12. It says, At that time, Barodak Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Now again, in Chronicles, it implies that the Babylonians recognized the moving of the shadow on the sundial. Babylonians were known for that. They were huge stargazers, astrologers. You recall that the Magi, the three or however many wise men that came to visit Christ, it was because of a star in the east. And they evidently saw this happen on their sundials in Babylon as well as in Israel. And they hear about why that took place. And so they send an inquiry to Hezekiah along with gifts that if it's true, they could honor Hezekiah for what was done. And so they come and they bring these presents and letters from the king of Babylon. And it says in verse 13 that Hezekiah hearkened 
unto them. The first thing that he does here is that he, in his pride and in his receiving of these people, he receives them with naivety. He's naive. He, his attitude towards these people is that these people like me as much as I like me. And they're really into me. And they really want to know about me. And they want to hear about how I got to be what I am. And they want to honor me. And these people really, really, really like me. I mean, these people are sincere. I could be an influence upon these people. That's the attitude. He hearkened unto them. He opened himself to them. And it says that he showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Now, this is not a real smart thing to do. An aggressor nation that is on the rise to become the major world power comes to you and you show them everything you've got. All of your gold, all your treasuries, all your military might, your CIA headquarters. He showed him literally everything. And so he makes a really stupid move uh, in this thing. And and you see not only naivety, but you also see that he was a little bit self-inflated. He's going, hey, look at this. Look at my riches over here. And look at the glory of my palace here. And look at the might of my military over here. And look at everything that I have gotten. And, and I, his answer is I, 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 me, 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 my, I, I. And look what I, I, me, my. He shows them all. But then watch what happens, verse 14. It says, Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? Where did they come from? And Hezekiah said, they are come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, all the things that are in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed him. And so the pride of Isaiah, not, I mean of Hezekiah here, not only makes him naive, it not only makes him a little bit self-inflated, but it also makes him a little bit forgetful. Notice those two words that are written there in verse 15. He says, all the things that are in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Really, Hezekiah, it's yours? It's your house, is it? Those are your treasures. And this kingdom is full of your glory. Is that really right? Listen, The correct answer to these men was not I, I, I. It was God, God, God. Understand something. Hezekiah, where did you come from? Oh, uh, well, I actually came from nothing. My father had so decimated Israel that he sold every valuable thing that we have in order to pay off an aggressor army so that by the time I came into power, we really had absolutely nothing. And then on top of that, The threat of that nation had besieged us to the point where we were almost to be completely destroyed. And had it not been for God's miraculous intervention, we would have fallen under the hand of the Assyrians that day. Oh, and and furthermore, I was as good as dead. I was on my deathbed ready to die. And had it not been for God who stepped in and healed me, I would be toast. I wouldn't even be talking to you right now. But you'll notice that Hezekiah gave absolutely no glory to God for anything that was in his realm. It was all about 
him? The answer was God. That was the correct answer. That's what God was looking for in the whole thing, but it wasn't there. And so the consequences of it, notice in verse 16. And so it says that Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which you shall beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You're going to lose everything that you have and that you enjoy because of this thing that you have done, Hezekiah. Now the truth about this passage and the truth of this life is this. That for you and me, whatever it is that we enjoy, whether it be talents or abilities, whether it's resources, whether it's your job or your business or the position that you occupy, everything that you have in this life is from God and is not from yourself. Do you know what you are? You are, at any given moment, the sum total of what you brought into this world and what you carry out of it. And that is absolutely nothing. Paul said that to Timothy. He said, we've brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And the most that we ever have any day of our life is that. That's what we are. Everything else comes from God. Now, God blesses us. He gives us talents. He gives us resources. He gives us abilities. He gives us opportunities. He blesses because he is a blessing God. But at no point are we to ever take glory for any of the things that we enjoy and think that it's because of something that we are that God has allowed us to enjoy those things. It's all a gift of his grace. Now, if you've been in the Lord for any given period of time, you know that that's the right answer. You'll say, yeah, well, I know. I I am nothing. It's all God's. But here's the temptation. Is that underneath us saying that with our mouths, yeah, it's all God. The position of our heart or the attitude of our heart can be, but I worked real hard. Yeah, God gave me the talent, and God gave me the opportunity, but I worked really hard to get where I am, and I built this business, or I built this church or ministry, or I built this small fortune or empire, or I sired this family that is doing well. And you can begin to think that you actually have something to do with the blessing of it. But here's the truth. Is that if God had just confused one dendrite of your mind along the way of you going from what you were to maybe what you are, what you have today, then you wouldn't have that today. And if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us, if we take the greatest blessings that we have in our life and you look at how those things came to pass within your life, you are certain to find a couple of places where something happened that you had absolutely nothing to do with. A break that took place within, with, within the situation or the circumstance, an opportunity or something. Something happened, an idea that didn't come from you, that you are now the beneficiary of in the whole uh, thing. And if those things didn't happen, then it wouldn't happen. Listen, let me give you some advice. This is free advice. How to lose everything that you enjoy today is just begin to take credit for it. Just begin to think that you have something to do with it or that it's not all God and that it's part you and that God, you know, he's blessing you because of something that's in you. You just watch what happens when you begin to have that attitude about the things that you enjoy within your life. 
You don't have to look very far to see people that once sat in some incredible positions of advantage or enjoyed some incredible things. And through that kind of an attitude, they were reduced to absolutely nothing. I love the story of Muhammad Ali and the height of his career as a professional boxer. He was unstoppable. No one could come near him. He was so fast and he punched so hard. Sometimes just a graze of his glove would knock someone out. One time, Muhammad Ali got on a plane. And when the seatbelt light came on just before takeoff and the stewardess came up the aisle and said, hey, you need to fasten your seatbelt, sir. He looked up at the stewardess and he arrogantly, smugly said to her, he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked back at him and she said, Superman don't need no airplane. Buckle your seatbelt. You know? <laughs> but you look at what that kind of pride does to someone. You look at where he is today. And you look at where people are. Listen, understand this, Christian. God is a blessing God. But if for one moment you begin to take glory or touch the glory for the things that he's done or the things that you enjoy, you can watch those things begin to slowly vaporize and disappear. It's all him. Every bit of it. Every bit of intelligence that you enjoy. Every accomplishment that you've achieved. Every dollar that you have, everything is from him. And he's to be glorified for that without exception. When you recognize that, there's an incredible freedom that takes place within your life. Because if you don't recognize that, then what happens to you is that your talent becomes your identity. Well, I'm a businessman, or I'm an actor or an actress, or I'm a comedian, or I'm, and you put whatever talent it is, and you put it next to that, I'm an artist, or I'm a carpenter, or whatever that is, and that becomes your identity. But that becomes an incredibly heavy burden. Because now what happens is that you find yourself responsible to maintain something that you didn't create. And you can't do that. That's why you see people turn to alcohol. They turn to drugs. They turn to other help because they recognize that what they have comes from an outside source and when they can't produce it within themselves, now they need help. And if they can't get that help, then they go into despair. And when they go into despair, then they crash and burn. But when you recognize that it's all of God, your identity is found in Christ, not in what you are or what you do. I am a Christian. I am a child of the living God. He has graced me and given me the things that he's given me. And as long as he sees fit to bless my life in this way, I'll walk in those blessings and enjoy them. But the day that he wants to take it out or move me in another direction, I am his and he is my identity. That's true freedom. Do you understand? And that's what we're called to do. Hezekiah got where he was because he claved to the Lord because he trusted in God, and because he walked in his commands. That's why Hezekiah became what he was, not because he was so smart. It's always the case. Well, it says the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made a reservoir and a conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son reigned in his stead. Now we're going to quickly move through this chapter. Don't get nervous. It's going to go fast. It says Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. That's puberty with the crown. And maybe some of you are dealing with that in your home right now. And you can just imagine what that's like. A 12-year-old with absolute authority. 
And it says that he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. The longest reign of any king that reigned was Manasseh. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. 55 years is a long time for someone like this. After the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. What this is telling us is that he became the Ahab of the southern kingdom. You remember how bad Ahab was in the north? That's how bad Manasseh was in the south. It says that he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven, that's the zodiac, in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son to pass through the fire. He offered his son as a living sacrifice to the false god Molech. And he observed times. That is, again, worship of the zodiac, observing the the various signs. Now, that's the third time in just these three verses that that it, it mentions that as a major sin of Uh, Manasseh, is that he was into the Zodiac. And there's some people, you know, they find that cute or they think, well, there's no real harm in that. Listen, the Zodiac is a religion of fate, not a religion of faith. We serve a God who's sovereign and in control, not a God who orders fate. He's God who orders steps, the Bible says. And so we're not to give ourselves to fate and believing that there's fate. We're to give ourselves to faith and a God of faith. It says that he used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. That's drug use in the Old Testament and the the consulting with uh, psychics and soothsayers. And he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son in this house. And in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearkened not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Manasseh undid every bit of good that his father Hezekiah had done. And he broke every single one of God's commands and he did it uh, ruthlessly. And so the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets saying, because Manasseh, the king of Judah has done these abominations and has done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. In other words, if you even hear what I'm going to do, there's going to be a physical reaction in your response. That's how bad it's going to be. And I'll stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. In other words, when God talks about the line or the plummet, it speaks of a measuring instrument, like a tape measure or a wheel. And what he's basically saying is that the way that I judged the northern kingdom for their sin is the same way I'm going to judge you for yours. You've sinned the same way. And so the line of my judgment will be upon you just the same. And just like someone takes a dish 
You ever go through the buffet line and you want to go through it again? And you still have all that stuff on your plate and so you just go to the garbage can and you just go, God says, that's what I'm going to do with the lamb. I'm going to pick up the lamb, I'm going to turn it upside down and I'm just going to go, and you're going to perish from off the land. And I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done that which is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt even unto this day. Now that's the word that the prophets gave to Manasseh and to those like him in Israel. Manasseh's response to that was verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had killed, I'm sorry, filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the tradition states that at this time Manasseh killed the prophet Isaiah. It talks about in Hebrews, those that were sawn in half. And Isaiah was sawn in half and he was prophesying during this day. No doubt an act of Manasseh who was seeking to silence the voice of truth and the voice of God in the land. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now, I want to pause right here for just a second and say this. When you read the book of Chronicles, and you read what the chronicler has to say about Manasseh. He tells us there's more to the story that's not listed here in Kings. At a point in Manasseh's reign, he was actually taken captive by the king of Babylon and he was brought into Babylon as a slave. And he sat in a Babylonian prison for a season of his reign. But while he was there, the Bible says that he pondered the things that he had done. And he thought about the God of heaven. And it says that he greatly humbled himself and he repented of his sin while he was there. And God, in his grace, not only set Manasseh free from that prison, but actually restored him to his position as the king over Judah in Israel. And Manasseh spent the rest of his life after that moment seeking to undo all of the wickedness that he had done during the first and the majority or major part of his reign. Now to me, that testifies of an incredible God of grace that we serve. Sometimes I talk to people that feel like they've committed the unpardonable sin or that somehow they have done something so bad or their life prior to coming to Christ is so dark that God will never be able to accept them fully or that God can't truly love them because of what took place in their life. Let me ask you this. Is what you did in your life prior to coming to Christ as bad as what Manasseh did in his? He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. He killed everyone that spoke in the name of the Lord. He literally tarnished the entire nation and he brought disgusting idols into the the presence of God. Altars to the Zodiac. I mean, he just blew through everything and yet God was willing to forgive Manasseh and restore him to his position. That gives me great hope. Because I know there's times in my life when I go through things and I say, God, maybe this is because. Or maybe this is just retribution. Or or, or God, maybe I, I could never be. It's not true. Understand, when you humble yourself before a mighty God, and you give yourself to him in repentance, he restores. And he's willing to forgive. 
Well, it says that Manasseh slept with his fathers and he was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah. And Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. And Ammon, his son, was 22 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Horaz of Joppa. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. And he walked in all the way that his father walked in. And he served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers and walked not in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and slew the king in his own house. And the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his sepulcher in the garden of Uzzah. And Josiah, his son, reigned in his stead. And so we finish in a dark spot and we finish in a bright spot. The worship team can come forward uh, at this time. Ammon was a young man. He reigned two years. He dies at the age of 24. And I wonder if in his mind he thought, you know, my dad walked in the way of all of his flesh for a long time. But then, later on in life, he repented and God restored him and brought him back. I wonder if Ammon just thought to himself, you know what, I'm going to sow my wild oats for a while. And then at a later time in life, when it's more convenient or when I've calmed down a little bit, or when I've experienced a few things out in the world, then I'll give my life to God, just like my dad did. Hey, God's a forgiving God. So I'll just live like hell for a while, and then I'll give my life to God a little bit later on. But you know what the sad thing is? Is that little bit later on never came. He was cut off at the age of 24. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that today is the day of salvation, that now is the accepted time. And in the day of salvation, God says, I have helped you. And there's such a danger in putting off the choice to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and to get your life right with God because you have no idea what tomorrow will bring. And You might be 22 or 24 or 44 and thinking, well, I've got time to make that decision, but I just want to live my life out in the world for a little while. I would caution you against that. And I believe if Ammon was here, he would say the same thing. But his son Josiah reigned in his stead, one of the greatest kings that Israel will ever see, Josiah. And we'll get into his life next week. Father, we thank you tonight for the word that you shared with us. We ask, Lord, that you would take the things that we've heard. Tonight, Lord, we were encouraged to pray. We are encouraged, Lord, that you hear us and that you have things for us, but that we have not because we ask not. Lord, tonight we heard your voice. You warned us against the dangers of pride and thinking that we are something in ourselves apart from you. Lord, we've also heard of your great mercy, that you're willing to forgive even the chief of sinners. And Lord, we come before you as that tonight. And so, Father, we ask that you would take these things that we've heard and that they would make an impact in our tomorrow and in our future. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is so powerful that it can perform those things that it says, and it can conform us into the image of Christ. Go with us tonight. Strengthen us by your hand. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.